Bob is not a person that comes here. I mean, we don't have a Bob here, do we? Do we have a Bob? Bob was teaching his little girl to say prayers before meals. Grace, we call them Grace. Do you call that them here too? And so he's teaching his little girl, and and he, and he feels after a few weeks that he's she's getting uh, a handle on it and gives her an opportunity to do it all by herself. And so his little girl bows her head and and thanks the Lord for mummy and daddy and for her brothers and sisters and then thanks the Lord for spaghetti that they're having and then just stops and lifts her head up. A- and so Bob just, just nods to her just to try and remind her she's forgotten something because in his household uh, they always finish prayers with in the name of Jesus, amen. And so he just uh, says to her in and so then she continues, she closes her eyes again and she says, and we thank you for, for, spaghetti, uh, for spaghetti in tomato sauce. Amen. <laughs> I just forgot there, didn't I? Uh, look, prayer's confusing discipline. Seriously. How do we pray? What posture? I mean, all of us hold this weird posture when we close our eyes and, and, and bow our heads and put our hands together. How do you think Jesus prayed? What posture do you think Jesus took? Because he wasn't that one. He would have. He would have lifted his hands to his father and most probably looked up towards heaven completely with his eyes open. Completely different posture to us. So is posture important? How do we do it? What are the details? Do we need candles? <laughs> and what about fasting? I mean... I don't know if you guys have had teaching on fasting before. It's, it tends to be a neglected uh, discipline. I mean, why fast? I mean, uh, I'm happy with my figure. I'm sure you are, Lorraine. And so, so oh, okay, we can do a swap if you like, because I can't buy a pair of trousers that fit. Okay, seriously. There's a real issue with being this stature. It's not, it's not a good issue. Everything's expensive to buy. Okay, so why fast? What is it about? You know, what's he saying? Is it all Old Testament stuff? Does, do Christians fast? And so I want to look at these, these elements of prayer and fasting with you. And I want to take you to Nehemiah. The Bible speaks about prayer all over the scriptures. But I want to start uh, in Nehemiah. I want to show you something of the depth and the richness of prayer in the Bible. So Nehemiah chapter 1, George ready for us earlier. Thank you, George. Let me just recap on some words here. Here's the heading for us. The effective prayer, I've just uh, hyphenated that just to make it easier to understand. The effective prayer, the person, is emotionally stirred, physically affected and humbly repentant. Did you get that? The effective prayer is emotionally stirred, physically affected, and humbly repentant. Let me show you Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev. These are Jewish calendar months. Uh, they're now not lo- uh, lo- uh, lunar in the sense of hours. Well, they are lunar, uh, so they differ to our months. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, this is Persia, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant who survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are back in the province are in great 
trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah, someone tell me where he fits. Where does this fit in the chronology of scripture? Where does it fit in relationship to Daniel that we're looking at? The exiles who returned. Did you say returned? Who went back. So this is beyond Daniel. And, and at the end of Daniel, uh, when, well, at the end of Daniel, towards the end of his life, the exiles return after the 70 years. So a group gets sent back by Cyrus. They're now back in the promised land. It's been probably well over 50 years. We're now talking about 425, 450 BC. So well over 50 years from the end of Daniel's life. This is, in fact, the very last book of the Bible. It's just, it's not like that chronologically as it's placed in the books. It's right in the middle there of the Old Testament. But it's actually the very last piece of biblical Old Testament history before the New Testament. And there's a 400 year gap. And the next word that's heard is in the temple by Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. So we're with the exiles again, but they're now they're back in Jerusalem. What's their condition? Is that text still up there? Would you just go backwards for me, please, Ricky? What's their condition? They're back in the land. This is what all they've been hoping for. Can we go backwards? Does that work? Uh, and they're back in the homeland. There we go. What's their condition? There's trouble and disgrace. Things aren't going to plan. The wall, which is essential. Look, I mean, we don't appreciate the effect of walls, but imagine yesterday morning in here when it was hailing and you didn't have that wall. What would it have been like? <laughs> Fun. <laughs> Seriously. Okay, so this place is in absolute ruins. There's danger. This is a desperate situation. But Nehemiah is all the way over in Persia. What does he care? But why should he care? He's in the palace of Susha. He's a wealthy man. He serves the king. And yet when he hears about the plight of his people, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed. He's, I know you're working kilometres here. So look, he's 900 miles, what, 1,500 kilometres? He's 1,500 kilometers away and yet I hear this one report this man this godly man stirred in his heart to to mourn fast be tearful and petition God he's emotionally stirred and this isn't just a momentary thing this goes on over a massive space of time from the month of Kislev in the Jewish calendar to Nisan. That's four months. And Nehemiah, it seems, is in this state of weeping and crying and experiencing and empathising with God's people. The effective prayer is emotionally stirred, physically affected and 
humbly repentant. Let me break his prayer down for you. There's three aspects. Prayer, fasting, repentance. And I want to bring those to you. Firstly, prayer. I sat down, uh, tears rather, I sat down and wept. Nehemiah, we can imagine it's in private and we've already said it's over four months. So he's regularly coming before God and he's summing up his, this is, these are his memoirs, he's summing up his conduct and he seems to be suggesting that day after day after day, Nehemiah was coming before God and his prayers were accompanied by heartfelt tears. It's a challenge, isn't it? We all pray, don't we? We've been praying for months, I'm sure, for situations, maybe for years. When was the last time the matter that we prayed for reflected something of the, the, the passion of this man? So he's praying for his people across 900 miles away, 1,500 kilometers, who were in a desperate state, his, his, his ethnic, if you like, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in the faith. And here he is, when he hears about their plight, stirred to tears for a prolonged period of time. We hear, we hear, I mean, we've heard about John's father. We've heard about uh, Kim all the way over in, in Paris or in France. We hear, if we listen to missionary reports about the persecuted church, last week we heard about the church in Orissa in 2008 and the persecution there. And no doubt we join in prayer, but here's the challenge. Does my prayer pattern ever reflect something of Nehemiah? And the similar, similar situations are very similar. Can you see that? that? Just as he was hearing about the plight of his people hundreds of miles away. So when we hear about the persecuted church, only this week I heard about the, read about the persecuted church and how they were having to rebuild their homes because their government in Bangladesh, the country I was born in, and the police there was confiscating property. But I'm ashamed to say, I wasn't down on my knees weeping. <laughs> and there, uh, uh, ethnically, my own tribe, if you like. And it's a challenge, friends. And the challenge, I want to bring you into the New Testament. I want to show you that this isn't just a one-off, but I want to show you how the Lord of the church uh, uh, walks in the shadow, if you like, of a Nehemiah who prefigured him. This is Jesus, he's before Lazarus' tomb. We know, the, we know the passage well, I'm sure, when Jesus saw Mary and Martha weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. In fact, the, 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 the sense there that he was, he was angry. Not at the people here but at what was taking place. Where, and then he says, where have you laid him? He asked, come and see, they said. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And it's, 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 it's in the context of prayer that will follow. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus encounters other people's suffering. And he isn't just... He isn't actually weeping for Lazarus. Someone tell me, why is he weeping? Uh, I know, we know he can't be weeping for Lazarus. How do we know he can't be weeping for Lazarus? Because he's, because, because he's coming to life in a moment. 
So he's angry and he's moved to tears and he's publicly weeping. And this weeping will be accompanied by prayer very shortly. Why is he, why is he moved to this degree? Yes, and what Satan brought on, Pam? Excellent. Don't ever be away from church again, right? Okay? Yes! His weeping and his anger and his wrath is aimed at the powers of darkness and sin. We heard about it yesterday. Uh, so death came by sin and sin through Adam. And who was the, the architect of that? Satan. Here he is, our Lord, publicly weeping about the, the effect of sin on the lives of his people. Look, I know in a penal colony like Australia, you're too macho to weep, aren't you? But you've got no excuse here because you're not a penal colony, are you? It's two states away. I mean, is, is, is Victoria penal? Was that a penal institution too? Sort of, but well, one state away then, okay? Okay, uh, so look, well, so you've got no re reason to be macho. Can I challenge you? Can we be challenged by Nehemiah? Can we be challenged by our Lord? That when we encounter the plight of God's people, that we take the time to let the gravity of their plight really impact our heart to empathise with them, and I think that means to put ourselves in their, in their shoes, uh, to, to sit down and reflect on what it would be like if someone, by force, entered your home and at gunpoint told you to leave immediately or, that, or they would assassinate you. What it would be like to stand on trial for saying that Jesus is Lord uh, and to be making a defence for him just to feel that pain to enter into the pain of a brother whose who's father may be close to eternity. And then to seek the Lord to give us such, such a compassion for that scenario that we are moved to tears. Because tears say something. I mean, look, we can express empathy and sympathy uh, and consolidation without tears. Yes, of course we can. But we know, don't we, uh, that, that tears reveal something powerful about our response to that situation. We see it in Nehemiah. We see it in our Lord. And I think it's a call to the church in prayer uh, that we take on the burden of one another. I wonder if tears are lacking in my prayer life because I don't really feel for them. It's okay for me. I have a pretty secure house. You know, and no one's pointing a gun at my head. Or, or threatening to steal property. Or I'm not at this very juncture facing the, 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 the possible death of a family member. And that can somehow make us distant from other people's suffering. Here's something, I'm, I know some of you have done this, and we want to promote this maybe next year or the year after, is, is go to impart. Or, or to Afghanistan. Or, or to some other situation, or even this afternoon, to go with someone you know is facing a suffering and sit with them 
And I think we'll soon find ourselves praying in a completely different light with prayer and with mourning, with tears. So may God burden us, may he burden me, may he burden each one of us to take the matter we're praying for so seriously that it stirs us, moves us to tears. Secondly, Nehemiah's prayer was accompanied by fasting. I'm going to spend a bit of time unraveling this one. Verse 4, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the Lord. So this is the Mosaic era. By that we mean this is when the, the body of God's people were under the Mosaic law, which obviously comes across to us in the Decalogue, but really the whole of the Old Testament is just the Mosaic law expanded. Now the Mosaic law only required fasting on one day of the week, the day of, I don't know if anyone's aware, the big spiritual day for the Jews where sins were dealt with, the day of atonement was the day of fasting. I think I've got a text here somewhere. Yeah, Jeremiah 36, so go to the house of the Lord on a day of fasting and the reference is to the day of atonement. And it's all through the Old Testament. So there was one specific day but the Jews made it more of a regular practice. Look, here's some verses. I haven't got time to go into them all. Judges 20, 1 Samuel 7, 2 Chronicles 20, Joel 1, Jeremiah 36, Ezra 8. All incidences where the people of God fasted as an accompaniment to prayer. But okay, that's the old covenant law. It's mosaic, perhaps. Does the New Testament teach anything on fasting. Someone tell me, does the New Testament teach anything on fasting? He did, exactly. That's my very next text. Thank you very much, Jim. Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil and fasted for 40 days. So what in the first thing we have to say is that this is one of the elements of the Old Testament that seems to penetrate into the new covenant. Jesus begins his ministry with a 40-day fast, and that's got all kind of implications, the, the wilderness, uh, the, mos the mosaic fast, and all sorts. But nevertheless, right at the beginning of the Gospels, we see fasting um, raise his head again, if you like. And, it, and we know that the new, in the New Testament that the Pharisees fasted twice a week. So we have an example, Luke 18, when the tax collector and the Pharisee are standing next to one another and they're praying to God and he's boasting about what he does and he says, I fast twice a week. Does anybody know about the Pharisaical fasting system? They fasted on Thursday and Monday. Well, they believed, I mean, well, we can't be sure, uh, there may be some uh, historical reason for it, that Moses ascended up the mountain when he went to get the tablets the second time uh, on Thursday and returned on, on the Monday. Uh, and hence they fast. I mean, we can't be sure. So they fasted twice a week. And it was a religious practice. What I mean by that is they did it religiously without fail. And hence, when Jesus' disciples aren't fasting and they're meant to be pious, this is what they say to him. Jesus, they said to him, look, John's disciples uh, came and they asked, how is it that the Pharisees fast, but, we, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answered, and listen, this is telling. The highlight will be now. The time will come when the bridegroom, he himself, will be taken from them, what will happen then? Then they will fast. Then they will fast. Jesus is expecting his church 
as a part of prayer to fast them. It's a presupposition, isn't it? it? Then they will fast. And in fact, this is exactly what we see in the New Testament. So the, the church begins. Luke the doctor has given us a history of the, of the beginning of the church. Acts 13, listen to this. After the church had fasted and prayed. They placed their hands on them. Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. And with prayer and fasting they committed them to the lord fasting friends we have to acknowledge as christians is a significant component of christian prayer as it was a significant component of jewish prayer we should be doing it jesus expects us to the new testament disciples practiced it jesus demonstrated it with an old testament history for it it's a part of prayer but but here's the thing but what's the rationale if we're meant to be doing it why any thoughts what is the rationale for fasting we're meant to be doing it it's meant to accompany prayer but why so pardon it saves time. Anything else? Oh, so explain yourself. Yeah, so that's that, that's that's so that's what I meant when I said it saves time. It saves time that you'll be eating, so that you can dedicate yourself to prayer. Yes, and yeah. And why do you say that, Sylvia? That's a good, really good point as well as Morris. Can you see that? It's a way of focusing away from ourselves, away from our needs, onto God. It is those things. And I'm going to throw a couple of others in. Here's one thing I can definitively say, that the Bible does not give us a definitive answer. So of the, the Lord asks many things of us. He doesn't always give us an explanation for why we should do it. And, and there isn't a biblical rationale for why we should fast, it's a presupposition of being in faith. It's expected of us. So, but let me just try and answer it for you. We have to at least try and see what the rationale might be. So I'm going to call in some scholars, some biblical scholars, theologians, world-renowned theologians. Here's one, uh, an older one, uh, Brungus. And this is what he says. Fasting became an effective means of strengthening the force of prayer. Carson, contemporary theologian, writes that fasting was done to indicate and foster self-humiliation before God. And Grudem, another contemporary theologian, I was selling his books a couple of weeks ago. Fasting expresses earnestness and urgency in our prayers. If we continue to fast, eventually we will die. Therefore, in a symbolic way, fasting says to God that we are prepared to lay down our lives for that situation to be changed. Have you ever thought about that? We've already talked about empathising with people to a degree when we feel their pain. Now fasting seems to be suggesting that that situation matters to us to such a degree that we were prepared to die for it. Isn't that what hunger strikes are about in prisons? Do you have those in your, in your 
funeral institutions. What do these people say when they're fasting? That they would rather die <coughs> than have their petition ignored? Can you see what fasting is suggesting? That God, this is how much this matters to me. That I'm going to stake my life literally on it by foregoing the very necessity of life. It's a way of, I guess, demonstrating to God the urgency, the seriousness. It's a form of self-humiliation. We are, we are, we are degrading ourselves. We, we, we are neglecting ourselves. We are not attending to ourselves. It's an expression of earnestness. It's a form of making our case stronger. It's a whole variety of things. I want to pick up on the two the lady says earlier in just a minute. Here's what Unger's new Bible dictionary suggests. Fasting was frequently joined with prayer, uh, with prayer that the mind, unencumbered with earthly matters, might devote itself with less distraction to the contemplation of divine things. I think that's what you're saying, Morag, in a more technical sense. Can you see? And I think it's a bit like what you were saying too, Sylvia. Between the two of you, is you, you, you're saving the time of prayer, you're saving the of eating, you're saving the distraction of eating, and effectively, what is it doing? It's giving us less distraction to be more focused on praying. Now, look, if you know anything about fasting, when you first do it, you, it's nothing but. Uh, distraction because all you can think about and all you can hear in the silence is yeah 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 seriously yeah yeah but that changes with practice yeah initially yes all you can think about and every time you see a sandwich or something on an advert on tv or you drive past big macs or you you, you your mind is just in overtime you're not thinking about prayer you're thinking about food but it doesn't always stay like that. And I'm going to come to that in a minute. Uh, initially, maybe distraction, it isn't later. So look, there's no definitive answer on fasting as to why we do it. But there certainly seems some rationale in the things we're saying. What we can be certain of, we must do it. And I say we must do it. Well, let me place it in this term. We're called to do it. We're called to do it. Matthew 9, you know, then they will fast. So here's the thing. Let me look at them. So how, how do we fast? And the Bible does give us some detail. Matthew 6, when you fast, again, Jesus is presupposing we will. When you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting and your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. So here's several things that are being said here. First of all, you need lots of oil. Have lots of oil. Uh, corn oil is the best. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, what was the purpose of the oil? Yeah, it's a, it was a moisturiser. Yeah, and for your hair. You, you put it on as a moisturiser, seriously. Sometimes I do it even now. If I, if I just finish a Big Mac or something and my hands are greasy, I, I oil my legs, seriously. Yeah, so if you ever see me doing this, <laughs> I'm, 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 just, I'm just looking after myself, okay? Oil is really good for your body. It's why you used to clean babies in it, remember? Do you guys do that? When you bath your child, you, you, you oil them all over. It's really good for them. The, the point is, is, is that Jesus wants every, he doesn't want anybody to know you're doing it. He wants you to be all done up proper. Like, you know, I guess he's to what he'd be like, put your makeup on on the day you fast. You, Gabriel, I'm thinking of. Okay? Put your makeup on when you fast. 
And so let me give you the points. There's a clear expectation that believers will fast. That's one thing that Jesus is saying. There's, it's clearly to be done in secret. Jesus is saying that. He's saying that every effort ought to be made to conceal it. And there's rewards associated with it. So when you fast, don't tell anyone. In fact, make an effort to disguise it. Eat a mint. You know, can, you know, don't be around somebody's house when they're eating and you have to say, well, I'm fasting today. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it has to be between you and God. Now, no, we, we, now we're going to have this corporate one in the fortnight. Yeah, but even then, nobody knows what he's doing. You don't have to tell your neighbor. Look, husband and wives are going to have difficulty keeping it from each other, aren't they? So, you know, you might want to tell your partner. Or they're going to cook your dinner. When you sit down and when you don't eat it, you won't be very happy. You may be wearing your dinner. Okay? <laughs> so, so, you know, tell your partners for sure. But endeavor to keep it between you and God. Here's some practical advice. If you've got a medical condition that may be aggravated by fasting, it may not be wise for you you know you know you may be exempt from that you know medical conditions seriously and you, you know you know some of the older folks johan you may have to see the doctor <laughs> before you try this you just make sure he, he says it's okay for you in your physical condition to do this um yeah yeah thank you mom right <laughs> so now seriously now I'm, I'm, in all seriousness you we ought to if, if perhaps if we're older or the medical condition, just check with the doctor that this will be okay for us to do this. Uh, it's important to drink plenty. You know, I wouldn't encourage you to, to fast without drinking water, at least water, please. Try and drink throughout. Um, when you break your fast, particularly if it's a 24-hour fast, and I'll talk about that in a minute, start with a light meal the next time you fast, the next time you eat. They don't go from a whole day without food to a chicken tikka masala at your favorite Indian. You know, uh, yeah, uh, that's not me, by the way. I'm Bengali. Uh, 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 you, know, uh, you, know, br you know, break yourself into food gradually because it can have an impact on your system. And so here's different ways you can fast, perhaps next Saturday. You can, you can either do a 24-hour fast, so you can start fasting 7 o'clock the previous day, and go right till seven o'clock on Saturday evening when we're gonna break our fast together. That's a whole 24 hour fast. Or you can do daylight fasting from the moment you wake up Saturday until it's sundown on Saturday and maybe together we'll break a meal or we'll have a meal together. Uh, or you can just miss one meal, miss lunch, miss breakfast. Uh, you can fast and some do it uh, for several days continuously. For three, four, five, seven days. People can do that. Now, look, well at that length, you know, I really am not suggesting you try something of that magnitude. Uh, you, know, you know, remember what I said about fasting earlier? It's something that you grow into, that you train yourself to do, you, 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 you practice it. I mean, it wouldn't be a bad thing even medically, so I'm told, to fast once a week, even for medical reasons. And I half wonder, it's one thing we haven't picked up so far, if some of the rationale is that it's actually beneficial to our system. It resets the system uh, and, and gives us a new start. So Christian, can I encourage us, maybe starting a week on Saturday, 
is to incorporate fasting into your prayer life. And quickly, I need to finish. I've got three minutes to finish my last point, and my last point was 20 minutes long. We're going to do it in three, in three minutes. Okay, look, repentance, repentance, repentance. An incredibly important one. Nehemiah, look, look how he prays. He prayed before the God of heaven. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, have committed. We've not obeyed your commands, decrees, your laws, and your sermons. Who in here has been obeying Jesus' law perfectly all week? Okay. Which, <laughs> apart from Lee. Apart from Lee. Okay? Yeah. You sinner. Because that is a lie, isn't it? We've just caught him in it. Okay? Okay, here's the point. Here's the point. Is that when we come before God in prayer, when we come before God, let me ask, I don't want to embarrass anyone, but did we take a moment this morning before we we dared open our mouths to say God is great? Did we take a moment to humbly confess and turn from sin so that our words wouldn't be an abomination to God? Can I challenge us? In the car, before we start, when you wake up, ask for mercy. That when we open our mouths, it may be a fragrant offering to God and not something that stinks because of the way our lives are being conducted. Look, we all sin. But the wonderful thing is, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. So keep short accounts. And certainly in prayer, can I challenge us, brothers and sisters, whenever we close our eyes to pray, before we dare ask of God, look at Nehemiah, I, I need to be quick, sorry. You know, before he dares ask God something, he confesses to God that he's entirely unworthy of God's attention. And I want to show you this, the friends, this continues into the New Testament. This isn't something just old. In Acts 11, this is what we see, that when they heard this, when they, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, okay, sorry, I, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself. God has granted even the Gentiles repentance. In Acts 4, it's something similar, that he may give repentance. So this repentance that we feel when we come to prayer, this confessing that we do, is in itself a witness that who is working in my heart and life? Because where does repentance come from? When I repent before God in prayer, what am I testifying to? Who's working in my life? What is it showing about my spiritual condition? That I'm in relationship with Jesus. Because when we stand and say to Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins, you could never do that in and of yourself. There's no person in this room who has the spiritual power to say, I'm sorry for my sins before God in and of themselves. When you say, Lord, I am sorry for my sin, that's because there's something going on in your heart by the Spirit of God who gives you repentance. What I want to say to you, friends, Every time you come to Jesus in repentance, that is a point of assurance. You walk away with assurance. I know God because he's encouraged me, enabled me to repent. He's enabled me to see my sin. What is the problem with our world out there when we say to them, you're sinful, you need forgiveness? What do they say to us? No, we don't. 
I haven't murdered anybody. I'm a good person. They can't repent. It's impossible for them to repent. And so when you come to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin, that's a mark of faith. It's a mark of the work of God in your heart. The fact that you dares, I hope dares, that you can see some of your sin, the fact that Montes can see some of his sin, the fact that you can see some of your sin is a gift of God. It demonstrates that Jesus is living in your heart because he gives you repentance. And he gives you repentance because what does he want to do for you? He wants to forgive you, restore you, bring you into relationship. And so what he does is he gives you the means for it. When you walked to church this morning, God gave you all the grace you needed to come humbly and in repentance. Let's take that grace. Let's confess our sins. You know what? There is nothing that you've ever thought, said or done that he's surprised about. He watched you. He was watching you. And all he's waiting for is for you to respond to the grace he's given you and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And with that, comes his mercy and his grace and reconciliation and restored fellowship and answers to prayer. Do you know? My time is up, so can you give me a minute? Do you know? Do you know? That my sin can affect God's response to my prayers. Are you aware of that? Here's what, here's what the Psalms tell us, Psalm 66. If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to my prayers. And look at this from the New Testament. James, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I think the point simply is, if I'm entertaining ongoing sin, unrepentant sin, then I've got no expectation that Jesus is listening to my prayers. In fact, he may find them abhorrent. And say, can I encourage and challenge you as I encourage and challenge myself? In prayer, to come in repentance. Here's what Christopher Ash says. When we become Christians, we do not leave repentance and faith behind as though I've done that. I'm beyond repenting and faith. No, listen to this. On the contrary, we enter a life which consists of daily repentance and faith. Nehemiah demonstrates that for us. And so I'm closing. The effective prayer is emotionally stirred, physically moved, and humbly repentant. There ought to be, at times at least, tears in our prayers. Fasting with prayer and true heartfelt repentance in prayer. May God grant us the grace to respond to him in that measure. Amen. Amen.